Hello everyone and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. They said it couldn't be done, actually, no one did. It's pretty easy to get an RSS feed and I guess some tubes, but, uh, I mean, they said it shouldn't be done, to which I say, you're not my dad, dad. Of course, we share two salient features with cockroaches, our persistence and our lack of ability to appreciate jazz. We cannot be stopped. I've been declared clinically dead three times since we started. Once even during our recording, Walker just gave me CPR and prattled on about SEAL Team flicks. Walker ascended to a higher plane of existence three months ago and takes corporeal form only to do this podcast. On that topic, allow me to introduce my co-host, Mike Walker. How you doing, Mike? Namaste. I am Mark Bigney, and we are going to be talking about games today. We're going to be talking about games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. We are going to talk about our feature game, which is Champions of Midgard. And then we're going to talk about our topic of the week, which is Victory Point Systems. With that in mind, let us hurtle on headway into games we played last week. Walker, what have you got to say on this? I've got to play uh, Dinosaur Island, and I thought it was a fantastic game, which was nice because I kickstarted the next upcoming thing, which I'll talk about later. But in Dinosaur Island, it's everything you ever wanted from a, a music park building with dinosaurs and worker placement and managing resources. And it really gives you this feel of building something, much like a, a Agricola or a Caverna. Is this the game you wanted Unfair to be? Uh, I really didn't know what I was getting into with Unfair. It was yet one of those other Kickstarters. You saw amusement park building. And yeah, so I guess it, it really is. It, it doesn't so much work on the rides as so much as it's a, like a Euro sort of engine building game. But just the fact how they incorporate uh, the theme of it, of the dinosaurs cause this threat and the rides, these thrills and the dinosaur, these thrills. And you have to balance everything out. I thought they did a really excellent job. All right, glad you enjoyed it. Glad it's validating your uh, your future investments. We played Cockroach Poker Royale. We've talked a lot about Cockroach Poker already, and I just want to add that the Royale version, and they call it that way because uh, parenthetically they have the metric system in Europe. They don't know what a quarter pounder is. And I don't like the changes that Royale introduces. It adds a level of rules ambiguity and having to remember things that a game like this really, really, really doesn't want. The The Royale version of Cockroach Poker introduces a new suit, which kind of works like the other suits, and yet it doesn't. It introduces two special cards, which works like no other card, period. And you can play the base game with the cards in Cockroach Poker Royale. You can just uh, do a little clutch. But it's, it's really not as good. So I had a great time. I love the game. Cockroach po- Poker Royale is still very fun, but the, ba- the the basic version is better, just Cockroach Poker Simpliciter. I was watching the game. I thought maybe for people who play Cockroach Poker a lot and are getting a little tired of it, I thought maybe it threw in this. I thought it was like a really cool overall bluffing system. It's like you have this master card that you're like bluffing with. You know what I mean? It causes, it raises the tension a little bit more, I felt, I thought. It does, but at the expense of not being able to easily remember what everything it's does. It's true. It, it looked as though it made it much more fiddly than it needed to be. And that's a price not worth paying, I think. No. Also, just parenthetically, in Cockroach Poker, everyone has difficulty identifying one of the suits, and that's the sort of light green stink bugs. And so before every game, you have to remind everybody, by the way, if there's a bug that you can't immediately recognize, it's a stink bug. And in Royale, they got rid of one of the suits and replaced it with the, the, the royal suits. And they chose to get rid of the spiders, not the stink bugs. So you still have the stink bugs. They could have gotten rid of the stink bugs, but they didn't. Anyway, minor gripe. If it's if it's the only version you can get your hands on, by all means. But otherwise, I prefer the normal version. Well, I'm going to go from Dinosaur Island, which was a big builder, into another big builder. We finally got Caverna back to the table. Still love it. I had no gripes about it. People compare this to Agricola. And I really just prefer Caverna over Gickler, just because of not having to worry about feeding your people. And like, I, I, I know I'm wrong. You, you don't need to say it, but that's okay. 
it's 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 this feeling you get when you're planting crops and you're harvesting them and you have these little pens with your animals, with dogs watching the sheep and you're going mining and you're sending your dwarves out on adventures. Caverna is an excellent game. I really don't know why they made it go up to seven players. That would be a nightmare. But on the good note, they've there's an expansion coming out for it. It's going to be like a race thing where there's going to be different races like elves and gnomes and halflings and I'm assuming there's going to be seven different races you can choose from seeing as you can play with seven players and we'll see how that turns out. It's not just the pressure to feed your family that I prefer about Agricola. The thing about Caverna that I really don't like is the fact that there are over a dozen special buildings that are difficult to read because they have tiny little text and everyone has to lean over and look at all of them. And it has less variability than Agricola. I like the fact that in Agricola you have different sets of special abilities entering the game every time. And in Caverna you just have the one. And that, coupled with the lack of pressure to feed your family, coupled with the incredible flexibility that Rubies gives you, I think it just goes too far into a just sort of go ahead and do whatever you want and maximize your score because you don't really have any pressure on you anyway. I, look, no knock against Caverna. When I say that Caverna is probably my second least favorite Ua Rosenberg worker placement game, that's still to say that it's a pretty damn good game game. It's just not every design choice he made in there on the variation of his theme, I think was for the worse compared to a lot of his other stuff. But take that for what it's worth. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Walker. It's just one of those games that are just really fun to play. Sure. And you're wrong to think that. On the topic of not fun at all, I immediately thought of this game when actually an oversight when we talked about games with unpleasant or unacceptable themes. Because I talked about, when we talked about that segment a couple of weeks ago, I talked about playing Ladies and Gentlemen and how about halfway through it started to make me feel kind of uncomfortable because of what it was making us do. This was a game that I felt uncomfortable with when I just read the description of the game. And the moment we started playing, I felt, I literally felt dirty. Literally. Not, I mean, I felt grimy and terrible. This game is called Unusual Suspects. For anyone not familiar with this game... Imagine codenames with racism or, or codenames with prejudice. You're given a whole bunch of pictures of people and based purely on eyeballing what they look like. So you see their sex, you see their race or their apparent sex. Uh, you see their race, you see how they're dressed. And from this, you're encouraged to make inferences about their tastes, preferences, backgrounds, etc., etc. So it is, it is literally prejudice the game. And you get questions like who is more likely to like jazz or who is more likely to have been at a protest or who is more likely to watch Fox News. And I'm not going to say that people who watch Fox News constitute a protected group that deserve protection from discrimination. But I think that encouraging people to engage in gross stereotyping about people, even if those people are caricatures, is an unpleasant activity. I it was so thoroughly unpleasant. I felt so wrong. Even just at the setup, just looking at this, and then they ask a question, you immediately start going through your head about, what is this game expecting me to do and why? Everyone at the table felt the same way. So this is not just me being some sort of progressive snowflake. Everyone thought, this is terrible, why are they making us do this? And this is strange because uh, Unusual Suspects was designed by Paolo Mori. I like a lot of his stuff. I don't know whether this is some sort of elaborate performance art joke where this is him making us evaluate our own prejudices or something. But that is the only way I could justify the existence of this product. It was a nightmare. I think it's fantastic. That's the game for me, watching people squirm while they play this game. Sure, as a social experiment, it's... it's Actually, there, there, there's a, there are potentially some interesting things you could do, but the problem is it's so blunt. It's not even one of those things where just beneath the surface you realize that something terrible is going on. That's kind of what was happening when we were playing Ladies and Gentlemen. But halfway through, it's like, wait a minute. We're really buying into these roles of being incredibly harried 
uh, business-obsessed men with incredibly materialistic, useless women that are badgering them all the time. That was kind of an interesting social dynamic that I never wanted to see repeated again. Unusual suspects, I felt that way when the third card was flipped up. You know, it's just it was just too soon, too much. I just, ugh. Couldn't take it. I don't understand. If you enjoy Unusual Suspects, please, I ask this sincerely, explain to me why you like it and explain to me why you don't think it's problematic. I'm curious. So that was Unusual Suspects. All right, next on my docket, we'll switch quickly, is going to be Too Many Bones. It's a fantastic dice game where it's a sort of a dungeon-crawling adventure game. All of the characters, they're called gear locks, and they're all very different. And the way their dice work are so completely different. It's really interesting how they got them all to be balanced out and work so well. And how they introduce monsters every round. And how, I know the story is the same a lot of the time with the cards. But it's, it's you know, it really mixes it up in how they introduce the monsters. And sometimes there's these really cool little mini games uh, in between the thing. Like one was an actual flicking game. And this one we got this time where the animals were sort of like moving around and massing up into these massive stacks. And we had to kill them before they ran off the off the board. It was too many bones. It was a great Kickstarter. They're, another Kickstarter is, I think, about ready to ship. And it's going to have a campaign system. So I'm looking forward to that. That is Too Many Bones. What company put that out, Mark? This is Chip Theory Games, and I'll echo everything you said. I think it's a great adventure game. I don't really like Chip Theory Games' approach to components. They believe in making everything as deluxe as possible by their own criteria, and this tends to drive up the cost and the weight of everything they do. And sometimes their usability choices are just bizarre. So they insist on making all the enemies these high-quality poker chips, which is fine in and of itself, but when you look at the way other games have done similar things, in particular I'm thinking of Assault on Doomrock, which managed to do very much the same kind of thing, having a stack of hit points represent a monster, but everything there is so much more readable and it's about a fifth the cost. They insist on the cards being these waterproof PVC plastic suckers, which again is fine, but they're really dark and super slippery. So whenever you insist on deluxe components being therefore less usable while simultaneously more expensive, I I tend to roll my eyes a little bit. And they really are absurdly proud about the way they manufacture things. I don't, whereas I think that tokens would have served a lot better in a lot of instances. But that's a minor gripe. Uh, for what is an excellent product. I really do think it's a great game. And the variety is, as you say, astounding. One of the things that I think is, again, a little bit overblown about the game is how when you build up your character, you can do it in a million different ways. And while on the surface that's true, I personally find that people, and not just myself, always build them up the same way. But this is not character by character. This is person by person. For example, Walker always builds up his attack stat to absurd lengths. That's just the way he does it. It's what makes him happy. So when I play the same character over and over, I always have them level up the same way. But give the, give a different person that same character and they'll make different choices. So there's a lot of variety in Too Many Bones. That's one of the reasons why it keeps hitting the table. It's a little longer than it wants to be. Sometimes a little bit more wrestling with components than you want it, want it to be. Definitely more expensive than you want it to be. But if you have a shot at experiencing it with somebody who already knows the rules because the rulebook, even after several revisions, is still a bit of a mess, then uh, Too Many Bones is definitely something to experience. So a Kickstarter rulebook is what you're saying? Oh yeah, totally. Gotcha. Well, it's a small, you know, same yeah. same old story. Small publisher. It, it it consists of a you know two or three man shop. Labors of love, and the rules are a bit of a mess. In the defense, in their defense, Too Many Bones has a lot of different moving parts. Every all these different abilities that work in slightly different ways. So sometimes the cost of all those different vari- uh, variables is increased complexity, but the rulebook is still a bit of a mess. 
I was able to play a game of Infinity. I've talked about Infinity before. It's my favorite tabletop miniatures rule set. So this is the full-on unpainted minis that you assemble yourself and you need terrain and you measure things with a ruler and stuff like that. Infinity is the best of all the systems that I've tried and I've played well over a dozen tabletop miniatures rule sets. It is uh, a much lower cost of entry of a lot of other miniatures rule sets, just as a parenthetical. So if you compare it to a Games Workshop product, for it, you need far fewer miniatures. And this is one of their best features. All the rules for Infinity, 100% of the rules are free. All the profiles are free. You don't need to buy any source books. You don't need to buy any books at all. All you need are miniatures, and even then you can proxy them. So if you've got stuff, you, you can you can give it a shot. The terrain you do need, but they sell paper terrain, and you can completely outfit your table with Infinity-produced cardboard buildings for about 60 bucks for a full 4-foot-by-4-foot uh, four table, which is really impressive. But anyway, I like Infinity, though, not just because it's economical, but I love the universe. I love the rule system. I played it a bunch back when I lived in a different city. I've played it, I think, over 50 times by now, and uh, not a whole lot of locals play it. But I made an effort to go down and play, and I had a great time. Brought out my old uh, favorite army, the Neo-Terran Capitoline Army. They went and did their thing. It was it was a great game. If you play tabletop minis games and you haven't played Infinity, then uh, you don't know what you're missing. All right, last I got is Shadespire. And I, just a, why I bring it up was because I decided that I need yet another game night. I usually have my set nights, and I have too many skirmish games and miniature games that are not being played. So I decided that we're going to set aside yet another night and I invited a bunch of people. So a lot of times online people are asking, how do you start up a group or how do you, how do you get things going? Well, I found the best way is find at least one other person that you know is going to show up, arrange with him the game and then send out invitations to everyone else you think can come. Cause then at least you've got that one player that you're going to play with and whoever shows up shows up. It doesn't really matter. You've got that one thing set up and you're good to go. And the other thing is consistency. If you're going to start it, then just keep with it and make sure, you know, it's running there, you know, every Friday night, every Saturday night, just make sure you're there to, you know, welcome people in. And we played Shadespire and we tried a three player for the first time. And I thought it worked very well for a, like a, for a two player skirmish game to introduce multiplayers. Usually it's a mess. This wasn't so bad. That doesn't exactly sound like a glowing recommendation. It wasn't so bad. Well, I mean, it didn't, it didn't introduce any any like uh, external rules it was pretty well just go you know go clockwise and go counterclockwise there wasn't any you know interesting mechanisms in order to incorporate more players given that it's an objective based game for the most part and it's mostly about the cards and the cards themselves already have on them printed in the rules for three or four players I'll grant you that it seems a lot smoother than a lot of other t- uh, typical games I didn't participate in the game I only saw the last half of it it did seem like there were your standard opportunities for king making and some of the other nonsense that you might associate with multiplayer games. But, you know, every, everyone at the table seemed to have a good time. So I'm still willing to give it a shot multiplayer, but I have my doubts. Well, I think the fact that it's limited to three turns, you know what I mean? I think it might might not be so bad. Sure. Last up is a game that I've played a number of times before, Food Chain Magnate. This is the most recent release by uh, Splotterspellen, the incredibly niche Euro designer. And I really like Food Chain Magnate. All Splatter games, to my mind, even though they feel very different when playing, have a number of very solid design continuities. One of them is that they tend to be no or very little luck, and thus are very, very, very punishing to new players, especially in that a lot of early decisions are very, very consequential. Food Chain Magnate is slightly better than a lot of other Splatter games in that sense, though, in that there's an impressive ability to rally and completely change your economy around. As you might imagine from the title, it's about running a fast food industry. And if 
you're careful, there really are a lot of ways to completely change up your business model and have a couple of really bad turns, but then come back strong if you're willing to stay flexible. It also has, like every other Splatter game, the other big element that I associate with Splatter games is it always has a solid sense of geography. They almost feel like pick-up-and-deliver games without any pick-up-and-deliver mechanisms. It's always about logistics, and I need to be able to go two squares to go get this thing and then bring it three squares over here, and location matters a whole lot. And I do not like pick-up-and-deliver games, but I still like the sense of geography of Splatter games. So every once in a while, what I really want is a game uh, is a Splatter game, and usually I go to Food Chain Magnet or, or Antiquity. And they have, I think they're going through now their seventh printing of Food Chain Magnet. It's just, they're selling, they're selling them faster than they can print them. And it really is a very successful design. It looks great. The map tiles are a bit bland, but all the art is this great retro style. It's a table monster, but there are a variety of ways to, to, to solve that and be able to compensate for that. And honestly, I think that it's a little, it looks a little more intimidating than it needs to be. I taught this game uh, that, that I played last week. I taught three new players and we set up teaching and playing took two hours and 20 minutes. And that's, that's pretty impressive for a game of its de- de- decision-making depth. So I highly recommend Food Chain Magnet. It's not something I want to play all the time. It is brutally punishing. One of our friends, I think, very accurately says that when he plays Food Chain Magnet, it makes him feel stupid. And I feel the same way. It's just, it's, it's an it's a unforgiving, wide-open economic model. And you always feel like you could be doing things slightly more efficiently than you are. Maybe that goes away if you've played it a billion times. But it, it remains unforgiving. I have to agree with that. He does look pretty stupid playing it. I have to agree with everything that you said especially the way it looks. Like, And do you understand the hate that it gets online for the way it looks? Or have you read any of the hate that it gets online for the way it looks? I, I think have. it's one of the greatest looking games. And I'm not being... I'm not being sarcastic or anything. Like, I think the theme and the richness in the art and how it brings that era to the table, I think it's a fantastic game. The tiles are a bit bland, but other than that, yeah. Everything else is so visually striking and so evocative. I really do think it's great. All Splatter games, I think, look gorgeous on the table. In their own way. They're all beautiful, and they all look very visually distinct. And given the variety of games that Splatter put out, it really is impressive. Even the games that Splatter's made that I don't particularly enjoy, like Bus, I wasn't a huge fan of Indonesia. I'm not a massive fan of The Great Zimbabwe, stuff like that. Again, because my my eagerness for heavily spatial, brutally unforgiving economic games is somewhat limited, and I'm pretty happy with Antiquity and Food Chain Magnate. It's, they're just an impressive publisher. Everything they put out is novel and visually striking, but yet yet unique. Food Chain Magnate is probably the most widely available at this point, and it is definitely one of their best, if not, their, if not the best, absolutely. All right, so those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it does not matter. So I really had to search pretty deep to find any news this week. And what I did find was Imaginarium from Bruno Cathala. And I always get my Brunos mixed up. So I had to search who was, you know, which games Bruno Cathala designed. It's true. Every time he opens the fridge, he's like, wait, which Bruno do I need? Do I need this Bruno or this other Bruno? And then he puts the wrong Bruno in the sauce and it's just all, it it just gets ruined. Exactly. So as soon as I realized which Bruno it was, I quickly lost interest in Imaginarium. You like Bruno Fiduti? On to Bruno Fiduti. Bruno Fiduti is your Bruno? Now he's bringing out a game called Chawa, I believe it's pronounced. And it looks like a very interesting hand management, like where everyone has the same number of cards and you're not bluffing so much as to, you have to remember what cards people are putting out. You have like negative and you're like fishing, you're getting a fish out. I think it's going to be a really interesting game. That is the one I'm interested in for sure. That's weird. Catala is my Bruno. 
uh, Bruno Catalan and Serge Aje have designed a number of brilliant games together, among them Senji, which is one of my all-time favorite games. It's strange that uh, Fiduti's your, your Bruno. I thought you, you might be a Catalan guy yourself. But anyway, I noticed that Asmodee is creating a subsidiary called Asmodee Entertainment, the purpose of which is to license out their properties for movie, and television, and other media adaptations. I have no idea whether this is going to work. Oh, it's worked so well in the past. Like, just look at Battleship. The Battleship movie. uh, (laughs) I think there was a Monopoly movie in the works at some point. Maybe there still is. Well, okay, that being said, come on, Clue. And I'm not being funny. I love the Clue. I shouldn't say love. The Clue movie was very interesting and well done. Like, I enjoyed it, and I enjoy watching it. What is it that Asmodee is, is going to make a movie out of? Well, maybe I think it's maybe they didn't buy a company this week and they had to do a press release, <laughs> press release of some kind, right? So it's like, oh, what are we going to do? I don't know. We're a multimedia company. Yeah, we're going to make movies. Fair uh, enough. Who knows? My next up is gonna is a, back to Dinosaur Island. They have its Kickstarter news. They have, and the way that I love companies doing it, whenever they do an expansion from a Kickstarter project, they also allow you to get back into the original Kickstarter and get all the exclusives from there. So... Uh, totally Liquid is the name of the ex- expansion by Pandasaurus Games. So if Dinosaur Island sounds like a game for you, it's on Kickstarter now. I have no idea how long it's left. It's almost going to hit a million, but I think you still will have time if you've listened to this podcast anytime soon. So when we start getting review copies for games, just note that that is not when we sold out. We sold out right now when Walker started hyping the Kickstarter projects that he's already backed. Right. Well, I want to get the I want to get the, you know the funding up for it so it hits yeah. all the stretch goals that yeah, I want. Yeah, it's, it's basically an elaborate pyramid scheme. Damn straight, it is. It's a good thing we don't have any credibility or any influence. Otherwise, I'd be worried that we were abusing it. Going back to another game I played last week in terms of Infinity. Uh, Infinity is going to be having a new source book out very shortly, and again, all the rules are going to be available for free. It's called Uprising. I mention this because it's a good time to get in on the game because they're making a new faction, uh, namely the Japanese Secessionist Army. Basically, I won't go into too much detail, although I really could. The pan-Asian faction called Chu Jing uh, has been repressing the Japanese for quite some time in the sci-fi world of Infinity, and so the Japanese instigate a bloody uprising and secede from the uh, Chu Jing state empire. So if you are at all interested in uh, getting in on the ground floor with a new faction, there are going to be several new factions released, not just the JSA, but also a couple of mercenary forces if you want to go check it out by all means, and so uh, the world of Infinity is going to be growing. I'm very keen to see where they take the uh, overall geopolitical state of Infinity in the future, because it's solid sci-fi speculative fiction. All right, so back to some Kickstarter news. I have a Kickstarter edition of Massive Darkness, all in shrink, and it's been sitting on my shelf since it showed up. So guess what? It's going to go to one of the listeners. You do not have to jump through hoops. I do not want likes on Facebook. Simply during our 25th episode, we will give out a keyword for the contest and I will, everyone will send me emails and I will pick a random email and they will be sent for free a Kickstarter edition of Massive Darkness by Simon. Well, for free within North America, international shipping will subsidize it, but you might have to kick in some dollars. On this the is end. also true. Yeah, Walker is very adamant on this. Well, the reason why we're giving it away in part is because I have a full Kickstarter copy, and so Walker doesn't feel the need to have uh, his own. So locally, we'll, we'll be well served by Massive Darkness. And he's too noble and stoic to say it himself, but he's just moved to tears at the loyalty and enthusiasm of our, of our great, great swag fans. And he would like to, uh, to give something back. So yeah, in about two months' time, we'll be giving it away. We're not asking for anything in exchange. No likes, no shares. We're not going to beg again. 
proud and stoic. But uh, wait for it. News to follow. All right, so that's the news, and on to our feature game, which this week is Champions of Midgard by Gray Fox Games. So when Champions Midgard first came out, it was very heavily compared to Lords of Waterdeep. And I think mostly because it's, you know, gathering up your adventures, going, trying to accomplish these different missions, where in Lords of Waterdeep, you're you're collecting, you know, fighters and wizards in order to fulfill a recipe. In Champions Midgard, you're collecting dice. And when you go off on the adventure, you get to roll these dice. And I really feel that they were different games and the comparison, I think, was unfair only because Champions Midgard is so much better, there's no reason to compare it. So, what do you do in Champions of Midgard? In Champions of Midgard, it's like a fantasy Viking setting. You're, like I said, it's a worker placement. You're going to these different places, collecting food and resources and these Viking warriors. And then you're sending them out on these missions to fight all these fantastical creatures, which of course give you victory points. And after eight turns, whoever has the most victory points wins. And that is Champions of Midgard. So I'll say right off the bat that I don't think the Champions of Midgard deserves any passion on any front. So when I issue my two chief complaints against the game, understand that my my vitriol and my animation about these faults is perhaps overblown because I feel even guilty caring so much about a game this tepid, this derivative, this uninspired, this pointless. One of the faults that I have against the game is let's start off with the theme. I am a big sucker for Norse mythology, and most of the time when a game has Norse mythology in it, even if I don't like the game, I'm at least able to appreciate some of the window dressing. I'm thinking here about some of the better Norse mythology games, like Asgard's Chosen, like Blood Rage, like even the game just simply called Asgard, even Odin's Ravens. There's there's tons and tons of games with Norse mythology, and honestly, I am hard-pressed to think of a game with even any mythological theme that wastes it as badly as Champions of Midgard does. So talking just about the base game... All right, fine, cut in, what? No, I'm just going to say, is Champions of Midgard, is that some sort of Norse... Is, some, is that... Does that say anything to you? Like, is that part of Norse mythology? Yeah, it's Midgard? just a name, though. It's just a shout-out. Well, like, well, that's well, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I really don't think it's it's supposed to be any sort of history or anything. I think they're just, like, it's a very fantasy Viking setting. I don't think they're trying to give you any reference to actual Norse mythology or any history lessons or Wait, 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 wait. Sorry, sorry. Let me, let me just follow this. So you're saying that it's not trying to be historical Viking stuff. Fine. And it's not trying to be Norse mythology either. It's instead trying to be fantasy Norse mythology, which is Look, to say I, having fantasy elements, but none of actual Norse mythology. No, I like, knew you were going to bring this up. Look, I'm go- let's go- start with Tolkien. Tolkien brought out what we think of fantasy nowadays. And he brought everything from British history and things and folklore folklore and people have you know taken that and and totally mutated into whatever they felt they needed for their game and that's all this is instead of taking it from from britain's folklore they've taken it from viking folklore and just mutated into something they wanted to use for their game you're talking utter nonsense because it's not in this in the game in the base game we'll talk about the expansion later because i think one of the two expansions does a lot to improve the game but in the base game all that there is is the very thinnest of window dressing, but not only that, but they picked the most boring possible window dressing imaginable. In that, you go and fight these fantastical creatures. Sure, there are three decks of monsters. One of them is all trolls. Troll, 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 troll. Fine, no, whatever. A troll lord. And, and a, a troll lord. I kind of assumed he was a promo or, or an expansion monster. 
Then there are the Draugr. Yes, Draugr are monsters out of Norse mythology. Good for you. Not definitely one of the most interesting, important, or salient ones from Norse mythology, but fine, whatever. And then there's the actual deck of monsters, which is, you know, you can identify them because it says monster on the back of the card. And there, look, I'm no, I'm certainly no expert on Norse mythology, but when you talk about Norse mythology, there are a whole bunch of big ticket items that you can pull from. The recognizable gods, the event of Ragnarok, the recognizable monsters, of which there are many. None of these, none of these, are to be found in a game of Champions of Midgard. The only thing that you can find that your average uh, dude off the street who knows uh, a little bit about Norse mythology like me could latch onto is there's one monster that's called the Fenrir Cub. Not Fenrir himself. You don't get to meet him. He's too important and interesting to be in a game like Champions of Midgard. You get to kill a Fenrir Cub, which I don't know if there's grounds for there being a cub. I don't know that Fenrir had any offspring anywhere in any of the Norse tales. Maybe they, maybe it was. Maybe this is just a super deep cut. Maybe there are scholars of Norse mythology out there saying, wow, they really were uh, showed fidelity to some of the more obscure elements here. Kudos to you. But for for me, who thought I thought I liked Norse mythology, maybe Champions of Midgard is showing me that I'm wrong. I I can only assume that's probably correct. Where's Loki? Where's Jormungand? Where's Ragnarok? Where's Odin? Where's Tyr? Where's Thor? Where where are any of these things? Where's Grungnir? Where's Sleipnir? Where are any of these things in, in in a game of Champions of Midgard? Well, maybe they just thought that those particular things are overused. Like in every Viking game you've seen, they use those things. Do they not almost every time? Don't you think it's maybe overused? Maybe they wanted to bring something new to the table? It's like why if, do you ha- if, if they brought all that, it's like, oh, here we go again. Here's Thor and here's Redrin. Here's Loki. Once again, all of these things out again. They brought all new stuff to the table. No, no, it's not new. That you're missing. You're entirely missing the point. Draugr were not invented for this game. All the different species of giant that you go and kill that they name in excruciating detail have not been invented by them. You can't give them credit for something novel. They've just picked the obscure, boring stuff out of Norse mythology. And besides, where's this attitude about this is so so well entired when we're talking about things like Mythic Battles Pantheon? You're like, oh, Zeus again. Let's throw a lightning bolt. Well, no, throwing lightning bolts is cool. The end of the world, because the wolf swallows the moon, is cool. It is. I, 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 can't, I can't fault you. I'm just saying I, I, I didn't find it that much of a problem. Yeah, and as I say, this is far more vitriol and, and passion than the game deserves. Because the game is tepid and more or less pointless. Oh, I'm, I'm sure you can be wrong. Yeah, let me let me talk about my second major criticism. Then then I'll I'll I'll, I'll have gotten off the, this off my chest, and we can have a more rational discussion about this game. And that's the blame tokens in this game. It's a standard worker placement game in a lot of ways. So there's not a whole heck of a lot of player interaction. Agreed. Ag- agreed. And this is not always a deal breaker. No. Well, it has the standard worker placement interaction where, exactly. where you're taking spaces before other people can. Precisely. Just so. So, in, And in that sense, because there are fewer worker spaces in this game than there are in, say, Feast for Odin, which is a worker placement game about Vikings that we both love, there's more player interaction on that, but not a whole heck of a lot. We can agree on that point. So in the classic tradition of game designers who, are, who don't really know what they're doing and figure they need to have more player interaction or some ability to slow down the leader, they introduce a mechanism that's just plain stupid. 
And the mechanism in Champions of Midgard that is just plain stupid are the blame tokens. If you go to a certain action space and you kill a troll, first of all, you get a wood because trolls are made of wood, which means they must weigh the same as the duck, which must mean that they must be a witch, so we should burn them. A witch troll. Yeah, exactly. You get a, you get to hand somebody a blame token, which thematically, I guess, kind of makes sense. Like, well, you didn't kill the troll, so everyone looks bad uh, badly on you. Of course, why that applies to a troll and not to a draugr or to a giant or to a Fenris cub or, or whatever. Ugh, but setting all that nonsense aside, this is plainly just handing negative points to somebody. That's what it is. It's, I am going to hand you a negative point. This is not substantive and good player interaction. It's absurd. It's egregious. It's not engaging. It's not fun. It's just, it, 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 we talk about pasted on themes. This is pasted on player interaction, giving the illusion of player interaction when really you're just involved in arbitrary hand, uh, handing out of Scrooge. I agree. It's a cheap way to try to handicap the leader. Okay, I'm glad, I'm glad we're on the same page there. So, so why, don't, why don't you talk a little bit about the mechanisms or the play experience that you like so much? Oh, go on. But the one I like the most of all, it's like you're taking your Vikings out and you get to roll these combat dice and you're killing monsters, but it's levels of risk. Because in order to get victory points, you have to kill these monsters. And, and going out to kill the monsters is an action space. And in order to kill the monster, you have to have Vikings. So you have to go to another space to get Vikings. So you have to determine there's only, there's limited number of monsters to kill. So more than likely you're going to take one of those spaces first, not even having the resources you need to kill that monster. Because if you don't go there first, they're going to be gone and you're not going to be able to go there. So now you're on this mission to kill the monsters and now you're trying to, so that's a gamble. So now you have to get the resources you need to do that. So you're hoping that you can get the warriors or get the food. And then if you get that, now you're on the fight during the combat phase. Now you're rolling dice. So it's yet another risk reward. And I just, I like all of this, you know, on top of everything else. I just like it when it all comes together. Okay. So uh, my experience of the game hasn't been like that. If it is the case that it is in order to play competitively, you have to be able to pledge to kill something that you're not yet able to kill. That I think is... It, when other games do that, I do enjoy that. That's an element of forcing tempo by virtue of other people's decisions. That, I think, is is great. I've never seen it in this game. Maybe that's just our different experiences, what have you. But what I don't understand when, when people are enthusiastic about this game, because it's not just you, this is, this is just a cube conversion euro, slightly dressed up. And the dressing, actually, I think makes it worse. This is basically the same as Kalos. We've been doing this for, for over a decade. This is you go and get your cubes... You then go and take these cubes and you turn them in for points. Just here, the cubes happen to be dice yeah, yeah, that you I'm, roll. I'm definitely not saying that the game mechanisms or or the, the rule set is anything overly fantastic. It's just the way it comes together. The fact that you're sending Vikings out to kill monsters and you're rolling dice and you're hoping, you know, for, for you know, killing stuff. It's in a, in, a, in a Euro worker placement like this, you usually don't get that kind of, of combat. Yeah, I, I don't find the combat very satisfying. If you do, and you find that elevating the the appeal of the worker placement, more power to you, I suppose. But the actual process of doing so, I think, is just further undermined by a level of randomness that I don't appreciate. Because there are the low-value monsters, where you play a dice game, and then there are the higher-value monsters, and they really seem to be the key to victory in the game, because they really are worth, on average, about twice as much as these other low-level monsters. And what you do is you put a guy 
who needs to have a boat, fine, whatever. The whole boat thing, I think, is mildly interesting. There are public votes boats that are available first come, first serve. Then there's a public vote, a boat that's slightly better, but costs. Or you can spend more resources to go buy a boat. And I like this because it involves wood and gold, which is a generally underused resource in this game. Mostly it's about food. Because the way to get the serious points in this game, the way to actually win is you focus on dice and food. And that's more or less the way to get the big value stuff. So you do that, you have the dice and the food, you go, you pull a random card. The random card can be anywhere, anything from here, get a bonus for no reason, or, oh, haha, all your dice are dead. And that really is the range of these cards and everything in between. There's, there's a whole bunch of nothing happens cards. So you have a random event there. And then your reward for having accumulated these resources and survived whatever random event you pulled is, you then get to play a dice game. And the dice results, I haven't seen too many egregiously uh, weird dice results, but it's not an interesting dice game. It's just roll the dice you've got. And the dice aren't interestingly different, certainly not in the base game. Once you get the expansions in, they start to get slightly, perhaps, borderline interesting difference. But mostly it's just, you know, good, better, and best. And, uh, yeah, just the level of, of randomness on top of a cube conversion euro. First of all, I'm done mostly with cube conversion euros, especially in the context of worker placement. And having seen people get royally hosed by those stupid random events certainly doesn't sell the experience to me. I always found that it comes to sometimes it gets really interesting scenarios where all your dice die, but you still kill the monster. And we come up with these great stories about how the captain of the boat comes back and claims how he's destroyed the monster all himself while all the warriors ran away. Sometimes it leads to great stories. I it's, do like your stories. Your stories are good. It, it's For fun. example, I, I heard you tell a great story a few months ago. You told me the story that Champions of Midgard is a good game. That was a great story. I hate you. I hate you so much. I'm surprised what you said about the dice because I really feel as though for how basic they are, that they do have a distinct feel between all the different dice. Honestly, at the end of the day, when playing, I don't feel the need to go after one kind of die as opposed to another. The only time when I ever feel the pressure to have some dice as opposed to others is because sometimes monsters arbitrarily say you can't take these these kinds of dice, which, by the way, makes no sense thematically. It's like, oh, spears won't wound this particular giant, even though the previous giant was more than happy to get killed by spears, whatever. Uh, so other than that, I'm more than happy to just get whatever the path of least resistance is in terms of dice. True, but some of the leaders, I like how all the leaders have a unique ability and some of them play into the dice. And with the expansions, you need to get certain warriors killed. Which Okay, will, well, will, uh, yeah, that's let's, like so, let's talk about the expansion. Yes, all right. So I guess I'll talk about the expansion first. So what this expansion brings in, I think what they felt was that when you rolled very poorly, that it really handicapped you in the game. So what they've done is, in when your dice die for any reason, now you're going to get these tokens which go on your Valhalla sheet. And now there's a whole uh, set of cards that you can use these tokens to buy that give you bonuses and and extra units and your leaders, you know, stuff, bonuses for the game. And I thought it really added more to the game. I think you're actually underselling how much the expansion adds to the base game because it's not even just when you roll badly your units die. Most of the time your units are going to die anyway because the way combat works in this game is every round the monster is going to kill a certain number of your dice. And that number that it kills is often in excess of the number of dice you need to kill the monster in the first place. So typically you're sending your Vikings off on suicide missions, which is all right. It just makes it the game has a very sort of staid, slow tempo. I get all these workers... I get all the, by workers, I mean dice, sorry. I get all these dice, I accumulate the necessary food, they go off, they die, but I get all these points. All right, let's start again. I get all these dice, I get all this food, they go off, they die, but I get all these points. With certain minor exceptions. And the Valhalla expansion, because that's the one we're talking about, 
gives you more ways to, number one, have your Vikings survive because it introduces a new die type, the Shield Maiden, who's very, very good at defense. So that's great. Get one of those and she'll be cycling through every once in a while, and that, that that's very helpful. They're expensive to get, but when you get them, they're, they're very, very good at keeping your guys alive. It also gives you something to do with dead warriors. Now, some of this is pre- unsatisfyingly unthematic. So this is this is where they decided to introduce some of the big-name monsters. In Valhalla, you have Jormungand, you have Fenrir. They show up for the first time. Uh, Surtur, I think, is there too. Uh, but the way you kill them is with a set collection mechanic. It's like, oh, I have two black tokens, two red tokens, and two white tokens. I've killed the Fenrir wolf. It's like, oh, well, congratulations. That... Uh, any any level of excitement and combat that this game has goes out the window with respect to killing the biggest name monsters. Again, thematic problem. But it gives you the ability to cycle your dice much faster. So it's not a question of all my guys are dead and I have to start from nothing. There's usually a, a safety valve. So it gives you more flexibility, it ups the tempo of the game, and makes sure that you always have more things to kill, which I think is very, very much for the good. I think the Valhalla expansion is 100% necessary for this game. Without it... Uh, I, as is pretty clear, I'm not a huge fan of the game. I will never consent to play this game again, base game. With Valhalla, I'd rather play something else, but I, I'd, I'd be willing to, quote-unquote, suffer suffer through it. So the Valhalla expansion, I think, helps to redress the tempo of the game. The other expansion of the game, Dark Mountains, I think is just more of the same. It's not really a huge thing. The new diet introduces is not very interesting. The new enemy type it introduces is not very interesting. It's just a, you know a couple more action spaces that feel an awful lot like other action spaces. So it's mostly forgettable. I think it's mostly because due to the Val, I shouldn't say that because I have no idea, but due to the Valhalla and your dice not dying, maybe introducing more spaces where you can send your dice because you have more dice now. Sure, fine. I mean, I don't object to the other expansion. It doesn't feel like it changes things up in any helpful or necessary way. And then there's the three cards that you draw at the beginning of the game, which cause, which cost a huge amount of Valhalla tokens, but give you great uh, endpoint modifiers. Yeah, like I said, there's there's Fenrir, there's Surtur, there's Jormungand, there's yeah. there's some other stuff, and I, I mean they they name check a couple gods and some like there's Loki's compass in the game now, which again I think puts the lie to your explanation that they wanted to avoid the big names. I just think they didn't know how to integrate them in an interesting way. Something else I have here is that oh, I think all the spaces are useful. There are some worker placements that some places never get used, and I feel that with the exception of a few of the one of the random ones that you draw, like one that gives you two victory points or some. Other ones that, you know, usually don't get used. I think most of the core spaces are almost always used. They did a great job of moving the first player around because it even gives you more dice. What are your thoughts? My thought is this, and I've been thinking about this for a while. About 10 to 15 years ago, if you were going to design a tepid, uninspired Euro game that didn't really have anything much to recommend it, you had basically a point conversion engine and it kind of sort of worked. And the, you know, going through the motions was reasonably diverting enough to, to be willing to call it a game. You made it an auction game. If you didn't have a clever way to distribute goods, you didn't have a good sort of action mechanism at heart, you made it an auction game. And that was sort of the generic Euro game. For the past 10 years, though, the worker placement is the sort of generic default Euro game. And so Really, it's just a question of take your pick. There's any number of these uninspired kind of either get your cubes to turn them into points or call the cubes dice or call the cubes adventures. Call it whatever you want. It can be whatever you want. It's a Euro game. The theme doesn't really matter a whole heck of a lot anyway. So I, I lump this together. I lump this game together with any of the, the Stegmire non-Scythe games, uh, Lords of Waterdeep, Stone Age, uh, Alien Frontiers, whatever. All these generic, forgettable worker placement games, they're all a dime a dozen. And if you want 
if it's your first worker placement game and you really like it, by all means, go crazy. So I've been playing worker placement games for a long time, and this one's just generic and does nothing for me. Especially since there's so many good worker placement games. You know, just play a good one. Any any Uwe Rosenberg worker placement game is better than this. Not even the not even just the one about Vikings, for crying out loud. But there's Tribune, there's Empire, there's Age of Discovery, there's, you know, Anachrony, there's Dogs of War, there's Keyflower. There's so many good worker placement games out there. I don't understand why people would waste their time with this one. Next thing I have here, I'm scared to say anything. My goodness. So what I've written here is many paths to victory. I know you said earlier that the only way to do it is to attack the big monsters, but it's not always been my experience that there there are some cards that get you victory points at the end of the game. There's the sets. There's, I think... Where do the sets come from, Walker? By killing monsters. By killing monsters, but not always the big monsters. You the, you can also be, get them from killing Druger or the Berserkers. So I feel that it doesn't handcuff you into one way. Whether it's the best way or not, that can be debatable. But there are different ways to amass victory points. It's not a slight on the game. I don't think I feel handcuffed. It's just, it's pretty transparently obvious to me from all the plans that I've played. Everyone who wins, wins by just killing bigger and more guys. Because whether you go kill a big guy or a little guy will probably cost roughly the same number of dice. Because again... A lot of the small monsters kill two dice every round, and a lot of the big monsters kill two dice every round. It costs the same number of workers to go send uh, a a team of dice against a big monster or a little monster, and the big monsters are often worth in excess of 10 points, whereas the little monsters are worth less than 10 points. I have another point here, but after you spoke about the resources earlier, it sort of makes this point moot and sort of changes my... What you said changes my opinion on it. What I have written here is no choke points for resources. And at first I thought that was a great thing. You don't have to worry about, you know... Running out of food makes it easy to get the resources you need. And then as it comes out of my mouth, you realize, yeah, it's easy to get all the resources you need. So all the spaces are pretty well generic. You go wherever you need to get the stuff. So what? why even have them out there if it's just yet another step to go through to get the stuff that you need to go? But still, it's not one of these things where you constantly have to wait three or four turns to get the stuff you need to go kill monsters. So you get it, you go... That leads into my other point, which is the length of the game. Eight turns and it's done. I think it it does not overstay its welcome too badly. I think it it cuts it off a pretty well the right amount, for me anyway. It's still a solid 90 to 120 minutes. It is. I don't think the game is too long for what it is. All right, I think Mark said enough bad things, but I think I have some bad things too. I think it has a really high learning curve. I think there's a lot going on right at the beginning. There's like about eight different decks they have to explain everything they do. And that on top of that, all the different uh, worker placement places you can go has a really long setup time, i.e. shuffling all the decks, getting all the pieces out. Well, that's once you add both expansions in. That's also true. That's all I have. I, I enjoy the game. For what it is, a worker placement with random combat, I think they pull it all into a very interesting theme that keeps it very entertaining for you know the one to two hours that you play it. I'll just repeat what I said before. I don't think this game deserves any passion, but it arouses passion in me because I feel that it's wasted its theme. The blame tokens are an egregiously bad game mechanism, and worker placement is just so often a bland and uncompelling affair, and this is definitely squarely in the realm of generic, bland Euro worker placement game. So that is Champions of Midgard by Gray Fox Games. Don't play it without the Valhalla expansion. Don't play it at all, but if you are if you have to play it, play it with the Valhalla expansion. Talking about expansion you have to play with, let's go back to uh, Lords of Waterdeep. I, I, it's a good game. Like I said, it's not even comparable, and I like them both fairly equally. But 
just like Mark said, do not play Lords of Waterdeep without its expansion as well. Or, or you could go and get any of the great worker placement heroes that don't ha- need an expansion in order to be good. This is also true. All right. Now on to the topic of the week, which is victory point systems. So we have a number of, we've sort of divvied up the different ways that a game can handle victory points. And the first one is purely hidden, just 100% secret. Nobody knows how many points you're getting. They might know that you are getting points, but they don't know how much. And I tried to think of a game that did this exclusively, where all your points are purely hidden. And I, I couldn't think of any, uh, no. to be honest. The only thing I came up with was my it was Bunny Island. And not all of the points are hidden. But Bunny, Bunny Kingdom. Bunny Kingdom. Sorry, I have Bunny. Why do I have Bunny Island? Because you blocked the memory of that game from your... Yeah, no doubt. So anyway, it, it's not not that all of the points are hidden, but... When the average score is 50 points and the finishing after the, the secret points is 150, that is a huge chunk of the points that is completely secret. Sure. And all, all you know is that somebody is setting aside a card for which they may score, Correct. kind of like the missions in Blood Rage or any number of other things. I like, I like it when a game has a little bit of hidden scoring. Just a tiny little bit. Like, for example, the Eclipse rep tokens, I think, is, is reasonably well done. In fact, a lot, of, a lot of things about the Eclipse reputation token system is good, especially insofar as it incentivizes early combat as opposed to late combat and prevents the scores from being perfectly calculable. Actually, the favorite way that any game has ever done hidden scoring for me, purely hidden scoring, is in Beowulf. There are these tokens that might be money or might be points. And it is a legitimate strategy to go to accumulate them. So you have the additional flexibility of sometimes having money on the side, but also nobody knows how much money you have and nobody knows how many points you're getting from it. This is not the primary way to get points, but as just a little bit of extra flexibility, I think it's handled quite well. That was in uh, Beowulf the Legend, the Reiner Knizia push-your-luck game. The only thing I think of was uh, objectives, and we say we're not going to do victory objectives, and that was incognito, where all you're given is a letter. So you don't. So even you yourself don't even know what your 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 mirror mission is. It's secret right up to the end. So on to the next one. That was completely secret, hidden victory points. The next one is game state untracked. And what we mean by this is games like Feast for Odin, where all the information is on the board, or Gaia Project, but you have to take time to add it all up, right? And it's a huge undertaking. If you're playing like four players, you know, to figure out how many points everyone has. And I think they do that on purpose. So you just get a sense of of what of how many points people have. So you just get a notion of who's winning and who's doing well. And it I think it detracts from ganging up on the leader because you're not quite sure who's winning. Would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I think it also often has the benefit of just having the play experience be a lot smoother and reducing mistakes. The number of variables that are involved in scoring a game of Feast for Odin, for example, is so high that if you're expected to constantly update it, it would be a borderline nightmare, especially Feast for Odin. And so leaving it to the end is just a better way to do it. Yeah, that's what I have here too, constantly up, up keeping this the score chart. It's keep, to keep the flow steady. What I don't like, though is when there's a combination of openly tracked points and open information but untracked points, and there's targeting in the game. What I'm talking about specifically is we just talked about Champions of Midgard, where you're just handing out penalties to people. If you are expected to just look at the score track and just hand it out to the person who appears to be winning, well, sometimes that's deceptive because somebody could be sitting on a whole bunch of points that's open information, but you can't be bothered to track because it's not in the score track. The same thing we pointed out was true in Alien Artifacts. In Alien Artifacts, there's targeted aggression, 
And you might be just tempted to just glance at the score track and see who's winning. But the score track only tells, in many cases, less than half the story. So when there's targeted aggression, I do not like there to be too much as you, as you call it, game state untracked information. It can still work. 51st State is a good example that has a bit of both openly tracked points and game state untracked points. Uh, but the game state untracked points are relatively minor, and the targeted aggression in 51st State is handled so differently. It's usually just ad hoc, specifically, like, I need this thing, or I need to nuke this part of your engine, whether or not you're winning, that I don't mind. But it can get out of hand, I think, in many instances. Hey, in these categories, i got some games that use the scoring track for other things. So like in this category, I have Terraforming Mars because it's also, you know, you keep track of some of it, but some of it is on everyone's cards and you don't really keep track of it, but it also is your income every turn, right? So whatever you finish your, you know, your turn-by-turn income is where you're going to start with victory points. So I... Another game with pointless and arbitrary targeted aggression. I thought, you know, you'd let that go by, but no, I guess, you know, you're still, still full of rage. No problem. Do you have anything else for... Game state untracked victory points. Yeah, as I say, when it's just a question of reducing fiddliness and speeding play, then I, I, I'm all in favor of keeping all the bookkeeping for the end. When it is coupled with targeted aggression, though, I really prefer that it be kept to a minimum. All right, so the next category is first to a certain total. So that means games that when you get to a certain uh, objective total or victory point total, then the game immediately ends or ends on that turn. So example would be Kemet. As soon as you get 10 points or 8 points, depending on what version you play, then the game will end. Or Game of Thrones, that's 10 kingdoms and it's over. Or Twilight Imperium, seems tend to be, 10 seems to be the, the, the going number here. Same with Twilight Imperium, when you get to 10 points, the game will end. Yeah, Antica works this way, and it, it's one of my favorite games. I find that these games, when done well, can be exceptionally tense. Because everyone can look at the table and see that someone's about to pull the trigger. And then it becomes a question of being able to get to that magic threshold. Tribune doesn't really have victory points, so it doesn't really deserve mentioning here, but it works on the same way. It's first to a certain total of victory conditions, which aren't really points. But in Antica, it's really a question of, I have these points, where are my next N coming to? You really have to plan for a specific number to get you over the threshold. And that kind of planning I enjoy, especially when it's in the context of a highly competitive game. That having been said... The bugbear of these games is turn order, because turn order can then be huge. We've talked about this in Twilight Imperium 4. You're increasingly frustrated in many instances. On Tika, it's kind of okay because your turns are so tiny that you're going around the table so quickly that turn order is not a massive advantage. But if turn order is not handled properly, the first to a certain value victory conditions can just feel incredibly arbitrary, especially if you happen to be the one sitting to the left of someone who wins and you could have won on your turn. Yeah, it's, you have covered almost everything that I have written here. Leads to very unsatisfying victories sometimes. The usual strategy in these type of games is to, like in that in that certain round, you're holding out, you're passing, or you're doing whatever it takes to hold it to the very end of the turn, and then scoring a whole bunch of points to get to the 10 so, because no one thinks you're going to win that turn type thing. And that's all I've got. Yeah, I, so you seem a lot less down on it than, than I do. I really like when turn order is handled well, either because the turns are so so small or the turn order is part of the game and not arbitrarily upended by an action card or something. I really like the op- you know openly declared first to a certain total of victory point condition games. But uh, I do realize that when they're done badly, it is super frustrating. I think Kemet does uh, a pretty good job of it, to be honest, especially because Kemet does a really good job of handling the conflict generally. But, you know, I like it in Antica. I like it in other Euro games where it's a question of 
just really the question of where are my next endpoints coming to? I really enjoy that kind of thinking rather than just the sort of generalized, I just want to maximize my points as much as possible. But being able to uh, have that specific calculation about how to end the game, I often find quite engaging, assuming these other problems don't show up. And I really think it's good for newer players to the game, right? Because they know exactly what they need to do. They can see the game state and they know, you know, what people need to win and they can see how it's going to develop. Whereas opposed to these other games where, you know, the totals can go up to 100 to 150 points and they they just have no idea how well they're doing or what's going on yeah or the very common question of someone being taught a new game what's a good score and very often in a in lots of games i get this question all the time in citadel confluence what's a good what's a good in-game score and i feel really embarrassed because as a game explainer sometimes i have to shrug and say it really depends but if it's just first to a certain number, you don't have to ask that question. You know what a good score is. All right. So that is first to a certain total. The next category we have is point clock. And what we need, what we mean by that is a game like 51st State, which means, or in a way, Scythe. I'm going to use Scythe in here as well. You might not think that, but when I mention it, why? You'll understand. Well, in 51st State, as soon as someone reaches 25 points, it's going to end that turn. So it's not the first to get to 25. It just means when one player gets there, it's going to end that round. And then everyone still plays out the entire round. And whoever is the most victory points at the end of that round is going to be the winner. I often find that it has some of the same virtues of first to a certain total. You know, you get a good sense of what a good score is, or at least it gives you an an implication. I, I agree that it's handled pretty well in 51st State. It's also a game that I, I talked about from last week. Food Chain Magnate works on the same way. There's a bank. Once the bank breaks for the first time, you then put out a new bank. And once that bank breaks, and since money is victory points, it's essentially a victory point clock. I re- what I really like, though, and this is this is probably all things being equal, my favorite way to handle victory points in a game, is when victory points serve as a point clock, but there's an other, there is a different end game state built into the game. An example of this is Race for the Galaxy. In Race for the Galaxy, you have a point clock, there's a pool of victory points. If the pool of victory points gets exhausted, the game ends, but there's another way to end the game as well, namely put out 12 cards in your tableau. So then you have this balance, this sort of competitive tension between two different strategies, two different sets of strategies, and two different sets of ways to end the game. If you are building a very, very, very powerful income engine, then someone else can try to counter that by just rushing, or vice versa. And I really that sort of plurality, I think, really improves the decision space. And so when you're able to do that, that's great. I've got nothing against games where it's it's always just a clock, but if if there are several different simple, easy to understand ways to end the game, and a victory point clock is one of them, I really think that, that helps with with different kinds of play styles. Yeah, I have it down. This is my I think is my favorite way because it's. It's one of those games where you can, you know, bluff that you're going to finish the game, like have all the indicators out that you're going to end it this round. So people will make decisions that they don't normally would. And then you just pass and, and like, and oh, no, not going to finish it. Or, or you can, uh, like sort of happens the same way as getting to the total where you can hold out to the very end and then rush that total at the end without anyone being able to stop you. And the reason I brought up Scythe, like I said, Scythe uses this mechanism quite well with the stars. Stars go up on the top of the chart, on the top of the chart. When someone has six stars out, the game ends and the stars are worth victory points. So I think it falls into this category as well. Sure. 
yeah, any ability to game the uh, sort of manipulate the game length. I agree with you entirely. Those calculations where you're sitting there thinking, how many more turns do I have? Well, probably two, maybe three or four. What are they going to do with themselves? And you really have to think about how the other person's going to manipulate the game length. And then that person who wields the power, they're able to make these calculations knowing that they're the ones in charge. I really do appreciate it when a game is able to do that. You're right, Scythe does that. Race of the Galaxy does that. Food Chain Magnate does that well, too. Lots of Euro games that have point clocks in them really let you play with the game length in ways that I find satisfying. It's much more satisfying than a fixed turn length, whenever possible. For sure. And that's what we have for the point clock victory system. Next up is hidden trackable victory points. So these are victory points that you can see the person picking up or drawing from a bag and you know what's in there or you see them put the cards in their hand that are worth certain victory points, but after that they're turned face down and you don't know what they have anymore. So games like this would be Tigers and Euphrates. You're picking up cubes. You see which cubes they're they're picking up, but they're putting behind their screen. So you're not quite sure what they've got, but you've got the general sense. And I also have Great Western Trail in this category because in Great Western Trail, it's mostly just, you know, the big add up at the end, but they are putting uh, cows into their deck and, and you can see which cows are buying, but once they're into their deck, you're not quite sure. So you can't really track that information. Yeah, simpler games on this axis are things like Small World. Small World works the same way. You publicly don't care how many points you score, but then they just go face down. You're not supposed to, after that, you're not supposed to know the totals. So the topic of hidden trackable information is a huge one, and it's a topic unto itself, because you can have hidden trackable information that has nothing to do with scoring, and many people really, really loathe hidden trackable information of all types. They think it's a cheesy way to test memory and they don't think the game should reward memory or any number of other reasons. I'm clearly not one of these people. I think that the scoring system in Tigers and Euphrates and indeed in, in Small World really helps to expedite gameplay. It really encourages you to act on heuristics rather than calculating everything because quite frankly, I don't find the process of calculating to the nth degree every numerical advantage very amusing and I also don't like sitting around waiting for other people to do it. And I've uh, I've seen people play Tigers and Euphrates with open scores, and it looks terrible. I've never done it myself, but you suddenly have to evaluate the, the consequence of every possible action. Like, well, I will give him one blue point, or as opposed to this other guy, black points. Okay, he doesn't need black, blah, blah, whatever. No, that breaks the game. Yeah, in, in Tigers and Euphrates, and indeed in Small World, you can develop these rough heuristics. And I personally enjoy playing games on rough heuristics rather than calculating the nth degree whenever possible. And in Tigers and Euphrates, if somebody pockets six blue points as a result of a conflict or they've been sitting on a blue monument for many turns of the game, you know they don't need blue points. You know, you can operate on that basis. You don't need to have the scoring publicly available. If And if you're wrong, they really did need blue points, well, then you weren't paying enough attention, or whatever. It's fine. I don't mind. And so whenever possible, I think that hiding information so as to speed and facilitate gameplay is definitely a thing to do, and scoring is often the way to do it. The predecessor to Small World, which was called Winky, had open scoring, and it was it had serious kingmaker problems, partially as a result. You always just went after whoever had the most points on the board. And I really don't like it when a game has targeted aggression and it encourages you to make superficially viable but actually degenerate decisions about on these bases. It's the same problem that I had with you know the sort of game state on tracked uh, issues. Those are both frightening prospects to me. Tigers and Euphrates with open scoring or small world with open scoring, that would be not fun. And yet, it's what some people want, and I respect that. They, some people just really hate tr- hidden trackable information. I'm not one of these people. I hate, what I hate is game state on tracked information and games with aggression. I don't like 
when somebody's about to give pain to somebody semi-arbitrarily, first of all, I don't like games where you hand out pain semi-arbitrarily, but I don't like to say, that, no, no, hold on, hold on. I realize that on the score track, I'm at 77 and this other guy's at 74, but look at my tableau. In point of fact, I have fewer points at the end of the day. That that I find tiresome. Just forcing people to stop and recalculate for whatever reason is not what I want a scoring system to do. But I think both those games do it well, right? Because they're just single points. Like in Tigers and Euphrates, each cube or set of cubes is only worth one. And same thing yeah. with Small World, each is just one, right? It's not like other games that I'll talk about later where it's like, oh, here's a multiplier or here's, sure. you know, 20 points or, or here, oh, guess what? I've got this card. So everything that you know, every bunny that I've got is worth, you know, six points. But also it's just the way that they handle aggression. Because in Tigers and Euphrates and Small World, there's aggression all the time. You're always attacking people. Well, not always attacking, but you're attacking people very regularly. But the way the aggression is handled, this is more about general game design, less about points. It's more about maximizing your own points and you've got your own goals. And in both of those games... The way to defend yourself is not by being the one who's losing, but rather recognizing what other people's incentives are to attack and working around that. If you have a small world race and you know that somebody is rewarded heavily for occupying mountains, well, then you know you either have to leave your mountains very well defended or just don't take mountains and let them take it because they're going to come after you. Stuff like that, rather than saying, oh, he's, I'm going to be attacked because I have 103 points rather than the other guy was at 98. You know, the, the former, I think, is interesting. The latter, I think, is tiresome. So... At the end of this, I, what I've got is my rants, and I think I get a chance to vent some of my concerns. So, no, nope. listen. That'll be all for So Very Wrong About Games, the podcast where Mark complains <laughs> no, no, no. about Champions of Midgard, and Walker doesn't get to complain about everything. We'll all see right. you next week. Bye. So, victory point systems that should be ashamed. It's these, this is, this is just me ranting. These systems that say, hey, if you've got the most points in this category, here are some more points. So if you've been winning this whole game and you've locked down this whole part, here's some even more games. And the game that does this most egregiously would be Dungeon Lords. Because not only do they do it once, but they do it for every category. So if you're doing really well in the game, then you're doing that much better. Yeah, Vlada Kavadl does that for most of his competitive games. It's weird because I, I agree with you. At the, at the same time, I think it makes sense to, re, if you want to reward specialization, it makes sense to have a point system that does that. But I don't see why he feels the need to do that in games where there are so many different categories and you're often going to get those bonuses by accident. Yeah, exactly. I can see exactly where he's going with it. And, and like you said, specialization is like, oh, this is my little niche that I did. And because I did it better than everyone else, then I'm going to get reward with victory points. But more than likely, if you're doing well in that one category, it's going to help you do better in another category. And it steamrolls into doing well in, you know, three, four or five categories. And now you're getting bonus points for all of those. Yeah, I, I feel it's even worse in Mage Knight, and that's one of the reasons why I think the competitive Mage Knight is often just a, a, a strange and unsatisfying experience when compared to the many co-op modes. Mage Knight is a fa fabulous game. We both love it. But when there are more categories than there are players that hand out these bonuses, you're not really going to be specializing. You know, And furthermore, the structure of the game of Mage Knight, same thing with Dungeon Lords, you're not really going to be specializing in those things anyway. You need a little bit of everything. So... I don't see why he feels the need to reward specialization. I have, I'm just going to say Bunny Kingdom on my list again. I'm not going to go on about it anymore. Just totally secret information. You can tell me that it's not secret because you've watched the cards go around and you know that people have drafted them. But like I said, when it's that much more at the end, I think it's fairly egregious. 
I can't wait to try this game. Yeah, I, I can't really... wait. I can't wait because you're going to say you love it and you don't, you're going to say, I don't know what you're talking about. But And I think the reason why I'm so upset about this game is because the actual gameplay is great. I really love how the card system works and how you're building your kingdom up and uh, how it all works together with the multipliers and everything else. And then at the end of the game, they throw this like totally like, guess what I decided to drive. Okay, just... here, here's a question for you. And, and I realize this might be difficult to answer, but since we're talking about ways to handle victory points, would you feel better or would you prefer it if in a game like Bunny Kingdom, you did not track any points during the game? All the points came at the end. I suppose so. Like, I was thinking about this earlier today. I don't know if that would fix it, but I think because Bunny Kingdom is such a mathematical game, it's like this this area that you've controlled multiplied by the buildings in it. And if you didn't put this arbitrary random point thing at the end, it would turn, like we just talked about Tigers and Euphrates and Small World, it would turn into this like math, how many points does this guy have? How many points does this guy have? And it would really slow the game down. So I'm wondering maybe that's why it's in there. Fair enough. Do you have anything on your list, or do you want me to just keep going? You can keep going, man. Next up is Seven Wonders. The more I play Seven Wonders, the more I don't want to play Seven Wonders. Its endgame scoring is egregiously long for what the game is. Like, just no. My friend wrote a brilliant strategy guide flowchart for the science cards in Seven Wonders. And it was mostly making fun of the game. I'll post a link to this uh, on our uh, on the Facebook link of, of this episode because it really is a, a great bit of satire and deserves to be recognized. But uh, he agrees with you, not necessarily in terms of, of how much time it takes, but in terms of how the science cards are scored because it doesn't really fit with how drafting games should work. There are a number of random vicissitudes that drafting games can introduce and so really the set scoring for science cards is not well done in seven wonders i don't think seven wonders in general like i don't i don't mind the base game like for what it is and i i really feel that it's one of these games where like more expansions they're adding it it just it runs this game way longer than than it needs to for what it is and that is all i've got i'm done i promise so I think a good summary is uh, we're not a huge fan of targeted aggression where points are tracked openly but imperfectly. We would rather that you be given you be given the necessary information you need if you're going to be choosing a target. And we also really, really like the dynamism of the tempo introduced by point clocks. So wherever possible, you know, some combination of, of these factors, which probably explains why we really like games like Kemet why I really like a game like Antica, but we really didn't like games like Alien Artifacts, and you really didn't like the way Bunny Kingdom introduces points. If you're going to have publicly tracked points and you're going to be having targeted aggression, you probably don't want those the, those publicly tracked points to be vanishingly insignificant. It just leads to degenerate game decisions and possibly hurt feelings all around. Is that a fair characterization? I like it. All right. Well, with that in mind... That is going to be it for your episode of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you very, very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email at justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at all the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. Or for those of you that hate the Facebook page because you're afraid of Cambridge Analytica, you can check out our new Board Game Geek Guild. We are guild number 3236. That's boardgamegeek.com slash guild slash 3236. We read everything you send us and we'll get back to you if you can. Thanks very much for tuning in and we hope to see you again soon. Take care, guys. Goodbye. And if you liked it, tell a friend. 
You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.